Hey guys, great news for the holidays. Seasons 1 and 2 of Raise the Dead are now available on audiobook at raisethedeadpodcast.com slash complete. You can use Audible credits for it. I highly recommend that you do if you're like me and you got a few of them stacked up. Go back to 1960, Kennedy versus Nixon, one of the most misunderstood elections in American history. Find out how it connects to the big upset of the 2016 race and why the Trump campaign took their inspiration from the Kennedys. Then get season two, 1964, the biggest power vacuum in American political history and what it says about the election we just saw. Both audiobooks come with exclusives not heard on the podcast. RaiseTheDeadPodcast.com slash complete. Get seasons one and two on Audible right now. The following is brought to you by Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Michael Bolick, The Joe Q Car Show, Frank Latuka, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, Jim Wright, Will Harris, and Craig. Welcome, everybody, to the Politics, Politics, Politics program for, well, 2020, the last one of 2020, December 30th. Oh, oh, what a year. What a year, man. I can't believe uh, uh, that we have made it, to be honest with you. My name is Justin Robert Young. So I've been doing some pre-production stuff for a couple projects that'll come out next year. And I'm I'm planning out the next few months of like what I need to have done to sort of stay on target. And I got to March and I was like, oh, that'll be a year. That'll be a year of dealing with all this. It's hard to fathom that this year has felt simultaneously on pause and fast forward but it is and it's over and we're gonna go out with a bang specifically a shotgun blast double barreled we got not one but two guests today robert howard he is a political science professor from the state of georgia we're gonna get uh, another lead-in as to the lay of the land out there in the Peach State, and specifically the strengths and weaknesses of the candidates that we are about to uh, see in our January 5th runoff. And then a conversation with one of our our good friends, one of the one of the bedrock elements of our PX3 family, and that is Tom Merritt. Tom Merritt is going to join us not only as our UK correspondent to talk about Brexit, but also to talk about Section 230, which is about to be talked about a lot more over the next 48 hours. And more specifically, what we would do 
If we were actually important senators with the ear of Mitch McConnell, the president, Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, and Mike McCarthy with that bill, because I'm, I'm pretty sure we would do something. We are in agreement that Section 230 is outdated law, but you will hear our suggestions. All of that is, of course, wrapped up in this 11th hour battle over the bumping of the $600 COVID stimulus payouts to $2,000. we have got the latest on that, including what is most likely to happen next. Bird face. Is there objection to the request for modification? Objection. Objection is heard. Is there objection to the original? I object. Objection Those is heard. Those are the dulcet Under tones the of order, Senate, the Senate elder statesman Mitch McConnell and Bernie Sanders as the latter attempted to get a vote on a House bill that would bump the $600 COVID stimulus direct payments to 2000 Mitch McConnell blocked that although later said that he would investigate not only the direct payment bump, but also election fraud and reform for Section 230, as the President of the United States has repeatedly said in the same basket. So, Let's go ahead and break down exactly what happened since we last spoke. Donald Trump came out. Donald Trump said that he would not sign the COVID stimulus bill unless they cut the pork, which is by and large foreign aid and science stuff that Republicans uh, love booing. And... The $600 direct payments were made into $2,000 direct payments. At this point, Nancy Pelosi miraculously got over the fact that she never wanted Donald Trump's help with any kind of direct stimulus because she viewed it as Donald Trump simply trying to put his name on the checks before the election. She enthusiastically backed it and enough Republicans in the House did as well. Pause here. How... Can Donald Trump sign the COVID bill like he did on Sunday and they can still screw around with it? I'm sure that might be a question through your mind. Effectively, this is like an arcane congressional or presidential power uh, interplay where Donald Trump is saying that he would have some kind of budgetary control that basically allows Congress to fiddle with the money after he signed the bill. That's how they're doing this. But it goes to the House. It gets enough Republican support. Now it goes to the Senate. So the question is, especially as the the Senate GOP has not been really in lockstep with any of this COVID stimulus stuff and with an incoming Democratic president, Every Republican's 
budget hawk nature is re-emerging, how many would be in favor of this big bump from $600 in direct payments to $2,000? Well, yesterday morning, we found out it was enough. Presuming all the Democrats are voting for it, then the Republicans only need a handful to get to the 60-vote margin, which is where they would need to get here. Of course, you got Senator Josh Howley of Missouri. He helped push for this with Bernie Sanders. Marco Rubio joined the party. So did Lindsey Graham. And then you have two very curious names that added themselves to the list of supporters. Kelly Leffler and David Perdue. Remember that Mitch McConnell partly wanted, according to reports, this COVID stimulus bill passed because they didn't want the fate of the Senate to possibly come down to the fact that there was inaction on COVID stimulus. The fate of the Senate at this moment rests on the shoulders of Kelly Leffler and David Perdue in Georgia. They face a runoff on January 5th, which is where I will be. By the way, so will Donald Trump. He's doing a rally on the 4th. We will see whether or not I can add that to everything that I'll be covering down there. But back to the Senate. You're going to read a couple headlines today, and I want to break them down. Mitch McConnell did block a Chuck Schumer strategy to try to get this bill, the House bill, to bump to 2000 through unanimous consent. So that would be they would they would see whether or not everybody in the Senate agreed on it and then it would be sent to the president and and everything would be on on the rails. Now that was never going to happen. So when you see headlines that say Mitch McConnell blocks Chuck Schumer, yes, that happened, but no that's not the most likely way that this was going to get voted on. Indeed, nothing in the Senate gets done unless Mitch McConnell wants it to get done. What we don't know is exactly what Mitch McConnell wants right now. And in my mind, he's got three options. So let's chop them up. All right. Option one. Mitch can put this through. He can show that Leffler and Purdue came home and brought home the bacon. He can put them in a big winning position right before his job is essentially decided. That means that they can go out on stage with Donald Trump on January 4th. They get all hold up their hands together and say, we got Georgia $2,000. We're the kind of mavericks that will go and do what is right for the people no matter what. And Ossoff and Warnock get to be people who didn't vote on that bill. That's option one. 
Option two. Option two. He can basically monkey paw, shout out to Wonder Woman, the Democrats and Trump. Because Trump is the one who said, I want three things all discussed together for me to sign this bill. I want $2,000. I want a repeal uh, of Section 230. And I want comprehensive investigation and election reform. Well, the one thing that's universally popular is $2,000, or at least universally in that some Republicans and some Democrats both like it. The other two are dicey on the Republican side and an absolute non-starter on the Democrat side. So for both Trump and the Dems, that's a non-starter, and we only have until the end of the year to get this done. He could effectively run out the clock on it. And I would not be shocked if Mitch McConnell does exactly that. Or option number three. Cocaine Mitch just doesn't negotiate with terrorists. He pulls back into his shell and that's that. Let's the clock run out. And by the time that we see them again in January, then we're already on to new business and everyone's going to turn their eyes toward what they can get out of Joe Biden. Now that might be the most risky for McConnell because McConnell still wants to be Senate majority leader. And he does know that Trump is very helpful. He needs Trump to get those other two in Georgia, Leffler and Purdue elected. So, I don't know. Normally, I would I would be all in on option number two. That seems like the most Mitch McConnell move. But I think option one might be in play. McConnell never specifically was one of the skin flints that didn't want a bigger, more expensive COVID stimulus bill. He just knew that he didn't have the votes, or at least that's what was reported. Mitch was floating out a $1.4 trillion COVID stimulus bill over the summer. And that's a lot more than the 900 billion version that we got passed. But I don't think he does this without extracting a pound of flesh. I do think that he is going to look for something. He's going to get something out of this. And his counterbalance is, all right, if you want these $200 or 200,000 checks so bad, then you're going to have to vote on something you don't like. And maybe that is some election thing. At that point, the ball was back in the Debs court. What do they do faced with this precarious bargain? To discuss more about what challenges face the uh, runoff candidates in the state of Georgia. Of course, that is David Perdue, Kelly Leffler, Reverend Raphael Warnock, and John Ossoff is Robert Howard. He is a professor of political science at Georgia State University in Atlanta, and we welcome him now. Welcome to the show, Robert. Thank you, Justin. Nice to be here. So Georgia is a, a very interesting political state, but, but probably not one that gets the national spotlight quite in the way that it has in this particular context. Let's actually start here with these runoffs. 
on on a scale from one to ten, how unique is the moment that we are in right now with the fate of the Senate being decided in one state on the same day? Well, with ten being the most unique, it's probably a ten. I think I read somewhere else that this happened one other state, one other time, but the fact that Georgia is relatively unique in that it has a runoff election if no candidate gets 50%, anything under the presidential level gets 50%. It's unique in that, so it's a weird circumstance that that would happen. And uh, since it happened here at the same time that the control of the Senate is in the balance, <laughs> And at the same time, that Georgia is moving and I think has established itself not as a red state anymore, but as a purple state. Um, so it's, it's kind of a perfect storm of events that have pushed us in the spotlight. We're not used to seeing it here. We're not used to seeing a lot of political ads. We're not used to getting a lot of phone calls. Uh, so every potential voter in Georgia is inundated by ads, flyers, phone calls, uh, nationally based things. So it's unique. Where did the runoff rule come from? Is this something relatively new or has this been with Georgia for as long as, as anyone well, can remember? Um, I couldn't give you the exact date when it was instituted, but it's a vestige of racism in Georgia. The fear was always that some African-American candidate might sneak through with less than 50% of the vote. So the rule was instituted to essentially ensure that no black man or black woman, but man back in those days would ever emerge as a victorious statewide candidate, probably sometime after reconstruction was over and uh, the reinstitution of Jim Crow segregation laws. So it's, it's a last vestige of racism. Is there energy in the state to get rid of it? Uh, I would imagine that at least the Republican Party at this point, looking at the fact that this would not be for control of the Senate if indeed uh, uh, Purdue had just beaten Ossoff in the way that he would have beaten Ossoff with those numbers in any other state. Yes, that would be my guess. I would, I would since the Georgia legislature, I understand, is heavy, heavily gerrymandered, um, even though we have since 2018, even in 16, Trump won by about 5% of the vote. And in 18, Stacey Abrams came within 50,000 votes. And uh, of course, Biden won the state with a plurality, not a majority, by about 12 to 13,000 votes. Um, so um, it, it uh, has um, been moving in that direction, but the legislature is still about 60 down from a high a few years ago about 60% Republican dominated. And I would imagine that given the, all the chance now that a Democrat could win in a runoff, they will want to move to eliminate the runoffs. And I would not be surprised if that's one of the changes that is voted on in the next legislative session. I understand Georgia legislature only meets for about three months of the year from January through March. Pretty good gig, huh? Yeah. That's, that's a nice, yeah. that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a sweet job. Only meet three months out of the year. Yeah. Uh, all right. So for a very powerful governor and a very powerful speaker of the house, basically. Oh, for sure. So let's let look at some of the other aspects that I think we're kind of curious to outsiders watching this nationally, and, and that is the idea of, I guess, what is commonly referred to as the the jungle primaries, the the uh, uh, the idea that there are a lot of candidates that are all going to be running. Many are from the same parties. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. 
you know, where, where, where does that come from? And, and, and certainly, uh, is it just tradition that, that you're, you're trying to do these, uh, uh, addition of like, well, sure. Kelly Leffler, for example, in this uh, election day result, she was less than Warnock, but if you combine her with her also Republican candidate, then it looks like more Republicans came out and voted, uh, uh, of how, uh, how much of a tradition is this? And is it the same thing that you mentioned before where no, it comes from reconstruction? Yeah, jungle primary is only for special elections. Okay. Understand a couple of things. You actually do not register by party in Georgia. Oh. You register to vote, and then you you can vote in a party primary. And once you vote in a party primary, for a certain period of time, you can only vote in the primaries of that party. But if that time period elapses six months to a year, then you can go vote in another party primary. So technically, I am not, I'm a registered voter. I am not registered to a party. Um, so the jungle primary, again, is only for special elections. In fact, uh, the guy running for Senate against um, Purdue, John Ossoff, first became prominent yes. when um, in a special election for the uh, sixth uh, congressional district, which at that time he won. Speaking of your scenario, he actually got about 49 percent in the jungle primary. Yep. Uh, yep but then ended up losing the special election by 51. He didn't go above that 49%. And he lost to Karen Handel, who then lost in the regular election to, to Lucy McBath by a narrow margin, and then lost a lot by about six percentage points in the regular election. So it's a vestige again, I think, of these, these old times when in a special election, everybody could get in and run knowing that you would have the runoff. So it's gonna be interesting if they also get rid of the jungle primary, um, given that if they get rid of the runoff, if they get rid of the jungle primary, then then Warnock would be the senator because he won yeah. the thirty-two. So that's all right. All right. So so let's let's just for for folks who are trying to keep it straight in their head, there's the jungle primary, and so anybody can go ahead and get in there, and then you have the runoff for that primary that that selects your candidate that then would go on to the the general election uh but in this case the top two finishers go on to the top two election. finishers got you top two finishers go on uh, uh in 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 the uh the runoff scenario for the general election uh so for this particular seat the leffler seat uh that means obviously we're going to get a, a final result on january 5th but then that seat is back up in contention when in the next two years next two years in 2022 which of course with biden i think we can agree that biden's going to be the next president which means that the republicans would be the out party and now traditionally in midterm elections the party out of power is defined by who's president tends to do better yeah on the other hand you know there's a concept called negative polarization where people are just driven out not even so much for their party but to vote against the other party so um, it's hard to know exactly how that will 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 um, will occur. But yes, in 2022, Warnock or Leffler, whoever wins, will be up once again for an election. It will be their third election, <laughs> considering they're running twice now, yeah. two-year period. So that's going to be all eyes are in Georgia again. It's also uh, in the midterm times is when the Georgia legislature, both the House and Senate are up every two years. 
but the governor and the statewide offices, uh, Lieutenant Governor, Secretary of State, a few other, Georgia has a lot of statewide offices. They're all up for re-election every four years, but on the midterm year. So Kemp would be up for re-election. You can only serve two terms as governor in Georgia. Oh, okay. But Kemp would be up for re-election. And of course, you know, as I'm sure you're aware, if you're following it, Stacey Abrams is the big, um, you know, big, big behemoth there kind of sitting there waiting. And, and I mean, the betting is, of course, she'll run for governor again in 2022. And she's a powerful force in the Democratic Party here and in the state. So that is that is where you you would suspect her, her eyes are on, because obviously she has become a national figure and certainly uh, 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 many more hosannas laid upon her during the last few weeks because of the presidential result in Georgia. But but the suspicion is that this is not her running for anything else other than governor of Georgia again, as she narrowly lost to Brian right. Kemp last time. I mean, she's she's an incredibly bright person, ambitious as all politicians are. And I think she would like to be the first um, um, woman and or African-American woman to run for the presidency and have a shot. She's, she is, she, even in the Republican Party, I think she was always well-respected within the state. And, um, you know, her insight, if that's what you want to call it, two years ago was that Democrats hadn't done very well by sort of being Republican light versions, you know, with yeah. Jason Carter and Michelle Nunn running in 2014. They hadn't done very well by running sort of towards the center. And it's not that Stacey Abrams is any sort of radical, regardless of what she'll be tagged in two years, but that um, her insight was that there's this whole base of voters that haven't come out to vote. African-Americans, young voters and the like, and we need to energize them and get them registered. And that's what led to a surge in registration. And even with all the Trump voters that came out in the 2020 election in Georgia, um, her organization and similar organizations had registered hundreds of thousands of new voters. And that provided the margin of difference, at least for Biden, um, and kept uh, Leffler and Purdue from, well, at least Purdue from getting over 50%. So let's, let's take a, a little bit of a look back historically. Uh, the biggest name I think nationally would be uh, easy to say in Georgia politics would be president Jimmy Carter being such a unique story in and of himself. But after Carter, there's only been two democratic presidents that have won since the civil rights bill. And that is Bill Clinton and now Joe Biden what is one in a split electorate too when Ross Perot was yeah. running? And so yeah, so even even more of a of a, a an, an interesting situation yeah. there. It's also in the eighties and nineties there was a thought that a Southern Democrat was particularly powerful because the 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 Southern Democrats who were moving away from the party would still vote for a Democratic candidate on the ticket, and uh, Clinton did win. Uh, not just Ross Perot, but right, that's the last time. People don't realize Barry Goldwater beat George, uh, beat uh, Lyndon Johnson. In Georgia. It was a landslide in 1964. Uh, Goldwater won the state. So the state at the federal level has been trending extremely conservative since the 60s. It took a lot longer for it to translate at the state level. It didn't really fully come to the early 2000s, so... So what was, let's say, Carter's coalition? Going back to 1976, uh, who went out and voted for Carter and how different does it look than the people that came out and voted for well, Joe Biden uh, oh so many decades later? 
So in the early 70s, when Carter ran, um, he was certainly considered in the National Democratic Party as a moderate. Uh, I mean, don't forget, he didn't run on ideology. He ran on, I'm an outsider from Washington. Uh, I am a breath of fresh air after Watergate. I don't have yep. any ties. So he ran on an image, I'm clean and you could trust me. You know, I'm as good as the American people. Um, for what it's worth, I was in college in, in central New York then at the Union College. Jimmy Carter listed that as one of the schools. He actually came and spoke in April during the New York primary. And I remember in the, you know, our largest <coughs> small college meeting place, and he was there was a buzz and excitement in the air. But yeah. he didn't run as an ideologue. Now, he was a New South Democrat, much more moderate on racial issues than prior politicians. But that's also the time in 76 when he won the presidency. That's when Cobb County and places here, that's when you started getting the switch from the old Southern Democrats were starting to switch to the Republican Party. Um, in fact, Nathan Deal and Sonny Perdue, uh, the two predecessors to campus governor were both registered Democrats before they switched parties, which was not uncommon. Oh, I mean, certainly, certainly. I mean, <laughs> anybody who has followed the the story of civil rights and the fracturing of the of, of the Democratic Party uh, uh, through the 60s, you know, knows that that is that is certainly a front line down there yeah. in Georgia. I would say Georgia, we're starting. What's different now is Georgia is mirroring the new the National Democratic Coalition. African-Americans are a significant part of the uh, base, African-American women in particular, um, educated people. Um, make up a high percentage, older white liberals um, or white liberals in general, uh, a percentage Asians. Um, and I think really um, you can break it down by, by education and income, but obviously the big change to me here and where Trump really lost the election. I mean, it's interesting that there, there are silly lawsuits in all of these states have focused on what they perceived as election irregularities in the inner cities in Detroit or in Atlanta, but where Trump really lost in all these states is not necessarily, the vote shares in Atlanta or Detroit didn't shift that much. What really switched here is the counties. Um, so I'm a resident of Cobb County, uh, which is in many ways the heart, I think you can say of the modern Republican party. Newt Gingrich, when we moved down from New York in 98, Newt Gingrich was our congressman in yeah. the sixth district, which now is Lucy McBath, a black woman. Um, and this is where Cobb County is where the Republican Party in the state really took off and got its start. You probably, I'm sure you don't recall, you're too young, but you probably <laughs> might not be aware that in uh, when the Olympics came to Atlanta, uh, Cobb County had passed an anti-gay resolution. So the Olympic torch relay deliberately went around Cobb County in response to that. That's how, so we moved to 98, that's how conservative and Republican Cobb County was. Um, so now you have a situation where in 2016, Hillary Clinton won a plurality of Cobb County. She won 48% of the vote about. Um, in 2018, Stacey Abrams won, I think 51, 52% of Cobb County. And Joe Biden won 56% of Cobb County in 2020. Gwinnett, which is another, Cobb County has like 750,000 people. It's larger than a lot of states. It's a big county. Yeah. Gwinnett County is even bigger. In Gwinnett County, the shift has been even 
greater. Um, I think Biden won 58% of the county. And, and again, it, it's hard. To, the biggest change to me is, is those counties, the 10 or so counties surrounding the city of Atlanta have really started to shift. Um, Biden won almost all of those counties. And I think Brad Raffensperger, who's the Secretary of State, has come under fire because he's not going to overturn the, the, the vote. He noted Trump also lost, not just because of the counties, but the two sort of exurban counties that surround, which have traditionally been very Republican, Forsyth County, which had race riots like 75, 80 years ago, and Cherokee County, which are still very Republican, but Trump's vote share went down by 10%. That's the kind of change that's hurting him. Of course, if you're a Republican, if you're Brian Kemp, what are you thinking about in terms of 2022. And here's the irony. Kelly Loeffler, who now said, quote, I'm to the right of Attila Hun, was picked <laughs> by Kemp as a way to connect with the suburbs, way to connect with suburban women. Um, and obviously, once Collins entered the race against her, who is a you know, Tea Party congressman, uh, she had to move right in order to win the primary. And she hasn't moved off that for the special election. So do you think that part of that is just a a general trend of the sub let, let, let's say more universally thought of as uh, previous to this like suburban counties beginning to vote more like folks from the the urban yeah. areas the city areas or yeah. is this yeah, just a, a, yes. a yeah okay so the answer is yes then my second question follow up is this a trump thing is this just something that Trump is bringing out of people, or is this something that we will probably see moving forward? Well, so one could argue it's a Trump thing, or you can argue that Trump has accelerated the the shift. Yeah. You know, I, I do a lot of work as an aside on on education financing schools, and there, the coalition, which mirrored the national and state coalition, used to be between rural areas and cities. I mean, there was some in Georgia more racism in white rural areas, but there was an alignment of interest fighting these wealthy Republican suburbs. You know, in Minnesota, it's called the Democratic Farmer Labor Party. Yes. You know, <laughs> farmers. And then in, in um, Georgia, you had, you know, Roosevelt won big here because he did a lot for the, you know, rural areas, the TVA and all those things. And I think what's happened now is the coalition is now between the suburbs and the city, as opposed to the exurban counties and the rural areas. They've all shifted. I think that was happening anyway. And I think Trump probably accelerated. Now, where I live, I live on the, the sort of western part of Cobb. I used to live in what's called the East Cobb, which again was sort of the heart of the Republican Party. And once we became empty nesters, we moved over here. My area and my district is very diverse. In fact, the precinct I live in is a Democratic precinct. Our state senator is a woman named Jen Jordan, another name to pay attention to. She's a rising star in the party. And our state rep is a man named Eric Allen, both Democrats. And they won 56, 57% of the vote here. But our representative, because of gerrymandering, is a guy named Barry Loudermilk, who is another extremely conservative congressman. So what they do is they take small slices and go up to these big rural areas and creating these, these uh, districts. So it, it is changing, but I also think what you've had is sort of a um, resettlement. Many African-Americans are moving to the suburbs now, like other people, they want what they consider better schools and a better environment for, 
for children. So as, as African-Americans in the state gain more affluence, they're doing what white people did in the 40s and 50s. They're moving to the suburbs. So there is some demographic change that's occurred in the suburbs. Um, but also you have had a lot of um, educated women, educated men move away from the Republican Party. And I don't know if that's going to change. If you want sort of a what I think Georgia Democrats would take as a role model, look at the state of Virginia. Uh, Virginia is now considered a safe blue state. Yeah, and and that's that. Uh, we we had a, an interview actually that will air uh, a week previous to this one, where the question is is not whether or not Georgia is uh, uh, becoming more blue than it was before, but the question is whether or not it becomes North Carolina, which has tended to stay fairly purple, or if it just goes all the way like Virginia does and becomes a fairly reliably blue state. I, I am no prognosticator, and any sports team that I bet on will want to win loses. <laughs> I'm a New York Jet and Met fan, so oh, uh, geez, my, Louise. All right, yeah, my condolences. So, um, so don't take what I say as gospel, but there are reasons to think that Georgia is more similar to Virginia, in the northern suburbs. Uh, Fifty-seven percent of the population is in the Atlanta area. So, unlike North Carolina, where you have Charlotte. Raleigh, Durham, it's much more spread out in larger rural areas in Georgia, um, not just Atlanta, but if you add up Columbus and Savannah and even Augusta and a little bit of Clark County, which is Athens, UGA, those areas are growing and you have this one dominant area in the state, similar to where Virginia has the dominant area of DC, which of course doesn't vote, but all those suburbs that are built up around Virginia and what's happened is the population growth in the northern suburbs of Virginia has exploded at the expense of the more rural areas. Um, we were in DC, my, my, both my children lived there and we were driving back and we drive on this road that goes right through Virginia. And as you get out of the suburbs, you start seeing a lot of Trump signs we started seeing and we started looking up, not the person who was driving, how many people? And there are counties with 5,000 people yeah. as compared to, you know, like Fairfax County. And, and, and so I think, I think Georgia is more similar to that with the domination of the city of Atlanta and the other city areas, like you have Richmond and Newport News and Virginia Beach and Virginia. Also, um, Georgia has become a very highly educated, high-tech kind of state. I know if you're out there in Oakland, you know, we might not be Silicon Valley, but we are, or compete with New York, but it has become in the South, the center for high tech industry. Oh, yeah. And so we are a highly educated state. The percentage of college graduates in Georgia is higher than Michigan, for example. So all of that portends uh, towards, I don't know, but towards um, Georgia moving in that direction. I mean, you know, traditionally what political parties do is they tend to move towards the center to try to recapture that vote. What's been amazing about the Republican Party nationally is they have not done so on a national level. You know, they it, 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 it's interesting because I think on some things that obviously there has been less of a hold on certain social issues. Like, I don't think that uh, uh, if, if you look at Donald Trump as a candidate, to George W. Bush, for example, I would not see Donald Trump campaigning on, let's say, a Defense of Marriage Act or something like that. Uh, but 
At the same time, there is certainly far more uh, an almost like Pat Buchanan-esque commitment to immigration. So there, there is there is this very strange calculus that on one hand, while the the uh, you know now like Jimmy Carter, uh, Donald Trump is uh, highly likely to become the first person to uh, uh, without being a, a successor candidate to another administration, have one term in office and then lose to the other party. Uh, there still is the fact that he had he increased his vote total uh, uh, in, in, in his second term and, and they were competitive in areas that they hadn't been quite as competitive before. So we are definitely in a, a, a scrambling right now. And Georgia seems like it is just demographically going to be at the center of it. Arizona the same way. I mean, Arizona is a state that's similar in that Maricopa County is like vast majority of the state lives in Maricopa County and then down in Tucson. So they have those similar characteristics, although they've even been more conservative, I think, in a lot of ways than Georgia. But the issue is you might find changes in the upper Midwest. Ohio, which yeah. was a battle, yeah. it looks like it's thoroughly Republican. Um, who knows, Wisconsin, which used to be a very reliable Democratic state. I mean, Biden only won by 20,000 votes. Michigan was Michigan was still a, like a three or four point advantage, 150,000 votes. And there's a strong, stronger labor movement, union movement in Michigan than in Wisconsin and other states. So that might, but at the same time, the South is trending in one way, or at least Georgia is. Um, I'm not sure what's going to happen in the upper Midwest, and maybe there's just some realignment. Nonetheless, let's keep in mind that Joe Biden won with over 50, over about a four and a half point lead, which, and he won a greater percentage than people. Ronald Reagan won in a landslide in 1980, but there was a third party candidate in John Anderson. So Reagan actually won about 51% of the vote. Biden's share actually was higher than what Reagan had in 1980, but Reagan had the electoral landslide. Yeah. I mean, just, it's, yeah, man, this is, this is an election. I feel like we're, we're, we're going to spend a lot of time picking through because there, there are some really fantastic numbers in here, but also it's like there, there, there's, there's just so much to pick through, including, let me ask you this, because I'm from Florida. So I, Florida politics is, is the, my natural inclination while Georgia becomes more purple, possibly even reliably blue, it seems like Florida might be moving out of the battleground uh, a status. Yeah. That, that that was that was a far bigger victory for Trump in in Florida. What do you think the difference between those two states are? Well, that's an interesting question because it's strange that Western Florida, Hillsborough County, and St. Pete and the county where it's Pinellas County used to be bellwether counties, and they're really moving Democratic. And you would think that would portend the state. Um, you know, Miami-Dade County was terrible for Biden in, in relative terms, and that's kind of strange. I do think the Democratic Party is not a very good party down there. Um, I think the Georgia Democratic Party with Stacey Abrams is a much higher performing functional party, uh, and the county parties here are doing very well. So part of it is you know, I know people who know Ohio politics will also tell you the ODP, the Ohio Democratic Party, is a disaster. Yeah. So there is some organization that's lacking in those states. Um, Florida is a mystery. I mean, he won Trump won fairly easily four percentage points, and uh, you would think it would be more closely aligned to Georgia. On the other hand, you have a high elderly population there. Um, 
you know, and that cohort tends to vote more Republican. Um, the Latino population there is a lot are um, not just Cuban, but Venezuelan, and they tend to be more conservative than um, than other. You know, that's the fallacy of seeing the Hispanic vote as one unified block. Oh yeah, yeah. No, it, it's all. But, but then again, you know, we I, I certainly spent uh, two years reading about how all of the exodus from Puerto Rico moving into uh, uh, Miami Dade, Broward, and and Orange County right. was going to totally flip it for the Democrats. So. Who knows? Uh, all right, I got one more question for you before I let you get out of here, and that is uh, the idea of the low turnout vote. That is something that we keep hearing about for these runoff yeah. elections. Historically, obviously, when you don't have the big bright lights of a national election like we did for this one, where it was a two-year drumbeat leading up to one big moment, you're likely going to have less people making it out to the polls. However, we also have a lot of mail-in balloting. People have already done that. Uh, uh, do you expect that this is going to be a low turnout election relative to other runoffs? Wow, that that's the million dollar question, right? Because it's all turnout for this election. The last two um, runoffs for senator and even two years ago runoffs, Democrats have historically done badly because as you're you are implying Democrats don't do well in low turnout elections. Uh, Republicans have tended to be higher turnout voters, older in general, Republicans tend to be wealthier and up until recently higher educated and all those are education, uh, age and income are all highly correlated with voting. Um, young people, less educated people. Um, I don't wanna say race because once you control for education and income and age, race, Actually, African-Americans tend to vote at a little higher rate than white people. So it's, it's not race, but those factors have tended to keep votes down um, on the Democratic side. On the other hand, this is such a highly salient election uh, that it's, <clears throat> and we live in this age of such high polarization that if any election is gonna have a big turnout, I believe Stacey Abrams keeps tweeting out um, the number of mail-in ballots and there, there were like something like 1.3 mail-in ballots in the general election. Yeah. The fallacy is there were more early voters than anything in the general election than day voters. And then mail-in voters were not the majority anywhere near, despite what Trump and others are criticizing about mail-in ballots. But this is a high mail-in ballot election. There's already, so I think there were 1.3, and I believe we are closing in on a million absentee ballots requested. It's very easy to vote absentee ballot right now. Again, the Republican legislature might change this come January. <laughs> but it's if you're over 65, you automatically get, if once you sign up, get an absentee ballot. If you're <clears throat> under 65 or not disabled, you apply, but it's a no excuses ballot. You can apply and it gets mailed to you. And then there are, um, in my county, there was a drop box less than a mile from where I live. So you go to the Dropbox. I, I voted absentee ballot and I got it. It took a while, took a few weeks, but I got the ballot and I filled it out. Next day, we dropped it at the Dropbox. And two days later, it was recorded as having been accepted. So, um, so it's so incredibly easy. <clears throat> and then there is early voting that's going to start very soon. So my hunch is it might not be what the regular, but it's going to be high turnout. And the issue is which base is going to turn out. Are Democrats going to see this as their chance 
to achieve any kind of legislative gains with at least uh, 51 with Kamala Harris's vote, the Republicans going to see it. And that's the irony, right? Because the best argument Republicans have is to prevent Joe Biden from his legislative agenda. <laughs> but if you don't acknowledge that Joe Biden is is the legitimate presidential election, then you you have a you have this conundrum. Well, and I think that was the interesting dance that Trump did at his rally, uh, uh, which when we air this will be a few weeks ago. Uh, was it was it was a real fine dance, a real a real like uh uh you know he's he's certainly not ceding anything, and he certainly is very mad at the governor and the secretary of state. But also, this is the most powerful and important election that has ever happened, and you need to make sure that the radical left doesn't get in. I can't imagine lots of people will buy the argument, I'm not going to come out and vote, you know, even the most committed Trumpers. But if it's an an election at margins, who knows? Well, and that's, I guess, my my last question is, and from a a man living in Cobb County, where there is a a far more liberal aesthetic than there, there once was, the question that I have in my mind as an outsider is, Exactly how liberal, because I think there's a lot of people, especially in those kind of counties that uh, uh, might be trending more or uh, were, were uh, if not never Trumpers, then people that were turned off by the kind of leadership that the president had specifically through COVID, which was obviously going to be the biggest test of leadership that was most in the front of people's minds that might not want. I mean, America in general doesn't like uh, the, the president to control both uh, uh, arms of the Congress. Well, I don't think a Republican's going to vote for a Democrat, and I don't think a Democrat's going to vote for a Republican. But I'll tell you what kind of people. Here's my anecdote. All right. Before the pandemic, my wife and I were at a dinner party. Yep. Everybody in their 50s and 60s. Last year. Last year. Mostly (laughs) moderately liberal. And as the professor, I said, well, who is your favorite candidate in the election? And we were stunned that everybody else at the dinner party said Joe Biden because we thought he was an also ran at that. Yeah, we thought he had no support. So I think Biden tapped into that sort of moderate liberalism that I think even you saw in the end, African American voters in South Carolina basically said, "This is the guy we want to run for president because we think he gives us the best chance of winning." So I think. I don't think Biden is this flaming, you know, Bernie Sanders type. That oh, are no. Of. And I think I would think Cobb County <laughs> is not a flaming liberal county, even among the African-American voters. But I think it's towards a moderate progressivism. And I think Ralph Warnock is a strong candidate because I think he taps into that. <laughs> Warnock's a good candidate. He's very strong for guys never run for public office. He, he's a strong candidate. I think that the, the, the consensus seems to be that he is the strongest out of the four. Uh, uh, you know, the, the question is whether or not this is just an election for which a Democrat can win. And that is something that we are going to find out. And, and I'll be there. I'll be there in, 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 in the peak state. I will actually be in D.C., which is why we voted. So. Probably smart. Uh, 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 well, I'll tell you what, we know a, lot, a whole lot more about it. Thanks to Professor Robert Howard, of course, of Georgia State University and the executive, executive director of the Southern Political Science Association. Thank you so much for joining us, sir. My pleasure, Justin. This was enjoyable for me, too. Thank you. Yes, friends, it is upon us. 
I'm leaving my apartment. <laughs> uh, I gotta, I gotta say, you know, it, it's as, as I get closer, it's a little nerve wracking. It's gonna be interesting. You know, I think when I when I left for Tulsa last time, I don't know whether or not there was a sense that this is something that was like on its way out or we had already seen the worst. Uh, we were in the midst of the George Floyd stuff. It was Juneteenth. There was just a lot, right? There was there was a lot going on. And this time it it definitely just feels like we're we're kind of into the belly of the beast. Not only a pulse pounding, high stakes, super weird double runoff with every star in the political sky coming out. But also this pandemic is still a a raging thing. You know, the numbers that we are seeing now are worse than when we first went into lockdown. But I'm very happy to do it because I get to serve you guys and nothing would make me happier. So a week from today, you're going to get my full episode about everything that goes on and obviously breaking down the winners, such as we would know that night. And then if you're on the $3 club, if you head on over to takepoliticsseriously.com, then you're going to get a bonus episode. On Monday, that'll be basically my first two days on the ground there going to events. So you get double the content because normally these these on the road episodes for the extras tend to be a little bit more feature length. Just because I got all this sound, what the hell am I going to do with it? Just, you know, put it up my nose. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Sign up at the $3 level to get the bonus episodes. As always, thank you to everybody who supports this program. Welcome to the show, uh, our our UK correspondent, an expert in tech, an all-around good fellow. Uh, uh, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to you, Tom Merritt. Oh, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to you, Justin. I, I love that introduction. Um, do you want to start with the British stuff first, or do you want to start with, with the tech stuff? Because the tech stuff uh, uh, got really relevant over the last uh, 24 hours. Well, yeah, I have much more to say about Section 230 uh, than I do about Brexit and fish. But, yeah. Uh, so maybe we start with the shorter one? Yeah, let's start with that. This all turned into a kettle of fish, didn't it? Or, 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 or <laughs> determining determining exactly how much, how many fish were going to go to the uh, the French and how many were going to go to the British? Yeah. Uh, just, just to put this in perspective, fishing made up 0.02% of the UK economy in 2019. Yeah. But it's very important, apparently, because it was the main thing they were fighting over uh, in getting this deal done. Which we did a, a longer conversation on the day that this deal was announced with Will Harris on on the PX3 Extra thing. And my point of view there, and I'd be curious your opinion, was that there was always going to be a deal and it was always going to be big, ugly, and painful because both sides needed both. 
right? I mean, I guess the UK didn't need it to be a big, long, drawn-out thing, but the EU did because they can't make it seem like there is a, a fast track out of this system, especially for big, productive countries like the UK is. Uh, and and meanwhile, they also can't just totally cut off this part of their organization that has existed for so many decades. They had to have a relationship, but it, it just seemed like now that we're beyond it, it seems fait accompli, but this was always kind of on a track. It just had to be big and ugly. Yeah, because a lot of it was performative. A lot of it was for the crowd, which explains the fish. Uh, the fact yeah. that it makes up such a small part of the economy is not what's important. What's important is that Boris Johnson knows that the people in the fishing industry and the people who think about fish, not based on its percentage of the economy, but as a as a British right, uh, we're going to vote for him. And so he he really needed to go to the wall for that because of the look. Same thing. You're right with Europe. Europe, uh, I think, less brinksmanship like than Boris Johnson wants to make sure that other countries know this is not going to be a good avenue for you. If you're a little bit worried about the EU, we're going to prove to you that it's better to be in than to be out. And again, a little bit performative, like, do you want to go through all that, folks? Uh, in which case, Boris Johnson's use of brinksmanship to try to get the best deal possible uh, works in the EU's favor because it's a way for them to go like, really, you want to do that? What this guy did? Yeah. Because there was, like, at the end of the day, a, a, a hard Brexit would have just been cutting off on both sides their nose to spite their face. Oh, absolutely. Eventually, yeah. they would have had to make a deal. It's just how much do we want to punish ourselves? And and when you look at this deal, other than the fish, uh, it's fairly uncontroversial. Uh, basically, you get free trade between the UK and the EU with a lot more paperwork. Because instead of being in the EU, which means you can just drive your truck full of whatever across the border, yeah. now you have to fill out a bunch of papers that say, I'm from the UK and I'm about to drive my truck with this amount worth of products across the border. And then you file the paper. Not that there wasn't paperwork before, but there's more paperwork now. But it's still tariff free. Uh, it's a little bit more uncertain with financial situations uh, because – Services are not covered by this uh, for services, including finance, uh, are still kind of uh, uh, unclear how this is all going to work. But for trade, for goods, uh, it's it's pretty non-controversial for travel. Now you get 90 days in the EU every 180 day period uh, unless you apply for a visa, uh, which you'll probably be able to get. Uh, British travelers will now have to use their UK health card. They can't use the European health card. Bunch of stuff like that that you would expect. European Court of Justice no longer applies to the UK. And there's some things you might not have thought about. The UK will no longer have access to security databases from the EU. Uh, UK will not be a member of Europol, uh, the law enforcement agency of the EU. So certain security-related things will take a little longer. Uh, student exchange programs like the Erasmus exchange program no longer include the UK. But on the other hand, Northern Ireland is kind of still in the EU. Yeah. You've got you've got an entirely different situation where if I'm a citizen of the UK traveling from England, Wales, or Scotland to Northern Ireland, I will have to go through a kind of mild form of immigration and declare whether I have more than 10,000 pounds of currency, a few things like that. It's not fully like going into another country, but Northern Ireland is still part of the customs union 
with the European Union, which was the only way they could keep Ireland from having to institute a border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. And that was the Irish backstop issue that people were so fussy about over the last two years. Yeah. And if if you think about it, there was a lot of rhetoric around, we won't let Northern Ireland, uh, you know, not be part of the UK. And it's kind I mean, it's still part of the UK. Don't get me wrong. But trade wise, it's not trade wise. It's part of the European Union Customs Union. All right. So we have the deal. Johnson makes the deal. And oddly enough, it probably doesn't stay on the front page for more than 48 hours because there is this other gigantic crisis. So I will ask you. Uh, this question, Boris Johnson going forward, is this a promises made, promises kept achievement, or is it going to get swept under the the tide of COVID? Uh, everything gets swept under the tide of COVID. So uh, when we come back up from air, for air, uh, after COVID, presuming there's an after COVID, uh, you know, when people finally can can go about their business, Boris Johnson will still be prime minister and he will then be able to crow, particularly about the fish. I protected the UK. I got us a better deal that Theresa May couldn't get uh, because I didn't uh, bend over backwards to those Europeans. My gosh, uh, I brought, you know, promises made, promises kept the UK out of the European Union with a great deal. And he won't really be wrong or right. He, He brought the UK out of the European Union with a fairly obvious deal. To, to a lot of people's uh, way of looking at it. Uh, he made it nail-biting to the end, but most average people won't feel a lot of that. Uh, and and he'll be able to say that that he defended the UK. And and after, after COVID is gone, he'll still be able to say that, and I'm sure he'll campaign on it. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, we will see going forward. Uh, all but for, did you see the the, the, the clip on, on Twitter today of the poor eel monger? <laughs> There was no. like, yeah, there was some video of like, like he voted for Brexit and now he's out of a, he's out of work because he deals in eels. They, they didn't <laughs> intentionally rhyme it, but he was a very sad eel monger. I have no well, idea why. I, I mean, the, the, there is some fallout there where, yeah. you know, people who could just, uh, you know, jump on uh, the Eurostar and hop across to France and conduct business now have to fill out a bunch of paperwork to do that. Yeah. Uh, eel mongers and others. And you try to do it with a bunch of eels in your arms. I know, uh, right? Uh, all right. Let's get down to what is happening now in the Senate. Uh, as of when we are recording this right now, which is well into the evening East Coast time, we don't know exactly officially what is going to happen in this brinksmanship with Mitch McConnell and the bumping of COVID stimulus from $600 to $2,000. But what it appears is going to happen is that he is going to tie at least this $2,000 COVID stimulus bump to the repeal of Section 230 and possibly some as-yet-defined investigation into election integrity. Let's table the election integrity right now and talk about 230. If you can do the back of the postcard five peso version of 230, because <laughs> I know you've talked about it a billion times, what's the shortest way that you can describe it? Uh, yes, Section 230 is a liability shield. Uh, it is often confused with the First Amendment. The First Amendment protects your 
uh, right not to be held liable for what someone else says. It protects your right to moderate content uh, in certain ex uh, extents. What Section 230 does is protect you from being sued for a certain things. So if you're an interactive computer service, uh, you won't be treated as the publisher of any information provided by somebody else. Now, you're still liable for what you decide to say, right? If Facebook publishes something themselves, they're absolutely liable for it. If Facebook chooses things and says, this is a Facebook curated page of stuff, they could be held liable for that. What they can't be held liable is if you or I, Justin, go on Facebook and post a bunch of stuff and then suddenly Facebook is made aware that it's there and they have, you know, they're now responsible for the libelous uh, statements that you and I made. Yes. And so they still could be held once it's reported. If they don't bring it down, they could be sued for it. Well, I mean, anybody can be sued for anything. In, in, sure. In well, and that it's really important to understand with Section 230 is is what's called a rule of civil procedure. Mike Masnick over at Tector did a great write up of this today. It's a way to get things thrown out of court before they become costly litigation. Right. Yeah. It says, hey, Section 230 says you can't be sued for that. So we're no, you can't even file this lawsuit that it's it's there to shield you from liability. Now, when it comes to now that Facebook's been told about it, can they take it down? Uh, that's where it gets a little murkier. And that's yes. probably an area where you could use some legislation to clarify it. Uh, but there have been some courts, uh, in fact, a 1997 case, Zarin versus AOL, said that it creates a federal immunity to any cause of action that would make service providers liable for information originating with a third-party user of the service Period. So federal immunity to any cause of action. Uh, and and some people say, like, that means that even when they know about it, they don't have to take it down. Yeah. I mean, the way that I always think of it is compared to all of the calm law that I was forced to learn in journalism school, where for newspapers, if it gets printed that's your ass. <laughs> like that's, that's a wrap, right? Because like, the newspaper is a publisher. Yes, exactly. And what because section you are choosing to do says yes. is an interactive computer service shall not be treated as a publisher. Exactly. Now, what we also agree on is that we both think that this is a, 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 a law that has survived and grown to encompass something far beyond its initial scope. Uh, uh, this is a law that came from a, a library case or bookstore case, right? Well, if, if you trace the lineage back, yes, there was a 1959 case uh, 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 where an L.A. bookstore was sued for obscenity rules for distributing an obscene book. And the way that that, uh, that case was handled by the Supreme Court in 1959, Smith versus California, the court said, look, if we require a bookstore owner to know the contents of every single book in his store, he's going to sell fewer books. That's bad for society. That's going to put a break on publication. Uh, so we think that we should define a bookstore owner as a distributor, that the publisher should be responsible for the obscenity and the distributor should not unless you can show they totally knew that this was obscene and distributed it anyway. 
Uh, and that was really the case law between a distributor and a publisher. A newspaper was a publisher, right? Uh, but the newsboy was just a distributor. So you, you couldn't go after the newsboy on the corner yelling yeah. extra, extra, uh, if there was something libelous in the newspaper. You go after the newspaper itself. And with interactive computer platforms coming along in the 90s, it was unclear whether AOL or message boards or, or anything like that were publisher or distributor. And so Section 230 said, we're going to define these platforms as distributors. So there's a lot of this that we can get to, but I I don't think we necessarily have to, because I want to get into a hypothetical here that okay. I, I think will be interesting. But uh, there, there is the thought that repeal 230 advocates really don't want to repeal 230. They want these social media sites to behave differently and they want to do that by threat of repealing 230 because this far into the game a flat-out repeal of 230 would be very challenging for these companies to do business right <laughs> yeah well yes and no uh it's interesting a lot of people say they want to repeal Section 230 for things that the First Amendment does. You'd have to repeal the First Amendment to, to get rid of your protection uh, to be able to moderate content the way you want, uh, yeah. to, to, to get, a, get a, you know liability for something somebody else said. What Section 230 does is said, instead of fighting First Amendment cases all the time, let's define a few situations where we can just say ahead of time, you don't need a lawsuit for this, Right. So if you repeal Section 230, what you do is say, let's go back to every case of liability now has to be fought in court. Yeah. Now, obviously, big tech doesn't want to have to do that. But this doesn't just apply to big tech. This applies to every single website that allows someone else to post on it. Your PTA message board on up to Facebook. So. If you get rid of Section 230, it doesn't say you are now responsible for everything on your platform. It says now you have to have an army of lawyers to fight out what you're responsible for in court more often. So it's a huge win for lawyers. Yes. It's probably not as damaging to a company that has a lot of lawyers, uh, but it's pretty devastating to smaller sites that don't. Have you or someone you know been offended <laughs> by something on the Internet? You yeah. might be entitled to compensation. Please call. Uh, all right. So then then let's take this out of the realm of reality and let's bring this into a realm of, of probably a more just reality where Senator Young and Senator Merritt are are uh, power players here in in uh, federal uh our, our federal government, and we are going to redesign 230. We are going to, from a from a point of view of 2020, now 2021, looking forward to what the internet can be, do we do anything? Do we put a new name on it? Do we tear it up from 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 the from square one? Where do where do we start? Yeah, I've I've thought about this a bit because uh, we we're not the only ones doing this. Uh, while there are a lot of people yelling on TV for the repeal of Section 230, a lot of the actual work being done in Congress is how do we reform it? What do we do to make it work better? And every time someone thinks they've figured out how to make it work better, someone else points out that the change now has introduced this other consequence. 
and so it's really tricky to be able to make a law that you don't think will make something else worse. Uh, you don't want to fix 230 and then make something else worse. So I feel like the biggest flaw in 230 is that that Zarin versus AOL case I mentioned earlier implies that the platforms, once they know about bad content, may still be immune. Now, there's there's exceptions to that. There's very specific to exceptions to that regarding obscenity, uh, lascivious stuff, FOSTA, SESTA made sex worker involvement, uh, uh, something that you, you get less immunity for terrorist content, I believe is, is protected in, in another section. So I think you focus on that. How do we make it? So once a platform has been made aware, uh, they now start to take on some liability and what are the standards around that? That's tricky. All of the other things about, hey, you're you're suppressing certain voices that I mean, you may not like it. I may not like it, but it's protected by the First Amendment. A private organization like Facebook can skew all the publishing all day long uh, to to be about liberal or conservative values. It's protected by the First Amendment. Section 230 just says uh, you're now shielded from liability for what other people say and what what the rhetoric has been is, well, they should be liable for what other people say if they're not going to be even handed in letting uh, people say things they don't agree with. Yes. And I don't know that you really want to do that, because what happens then is in a pre-Section 230 world, uh, whoever has the most lawyers wins. And I don't think you hurt the big companies as much. You now have another tactic for someone to actually suppress voices. In fact, uh, you know, you know, the movie Wolf of Wall Street, right? Yeah, of course. Uh, Jordan Belfort and Stratton Oakmont were suing Prodigy for people criticizing Stratton Oakmont, which was one of the cases that led to Section 230 is like, oh, you shouldn't be able to try to like shut down criticism of your company by threatening liability against a platform. Uh, so you'd have more stuff like that. I think you need to separate those. So as, as my senatorial, uh, proposal, I would say let's tweak section 230 so that it requires a little more liability once you're aware. And we have to be real careful about how we define aware. Yeah. Uh, but let's say if you know it's out there, then, then you do have to do something about it if it's illegal, et cetera. Uh, and then for the balance issue, let's create some new legislation. Let's let's figure out what we really want here. Let's not just use Section 230 as a beating stick to try to get Facebook to be nicer to conservatives or liberals or whatever you think. Okay, well then let's talk about new legislation and I'm going to put something out to you. What about removing accounts or deplatforming? Is there a role for there to be a, a, a user's ability to challenge being taken off a platform and a, a, a some kind of legal body being able to decide that that, no, you were unjustly removed and you do need to be reinstalled. It's tricky. Uh, on the one hand, my instinct is to say, hey, man, it's a private company. They can run it however they want. They want yes. to kick whoever off they want, then kick them off. What we're running into is that these platforms, in particular Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, are so big that people see them as public squares. Yes. And so new legislation would acknowledge that and say, okay, at a certain level, at a certain user level, you have a higher duty of care to your audience than you would 
if you're just running a PTA message board, right? Uh, and so while the First Amendment still applies to you, we want to put in some controls that let people feel like they're heard when they feel they've been treated unfairly. And that's when you start to get into the idea of let's hold people accountable to their own rules. I think that's how you can still abide by the First Amendment, but create legislation that says if these are your terms of service, then you need to abide by them. And, and let's put some stricter rules. And I would, I would put them for platforms of a certain size to say, like, let's not crush small sites just getting started. Let's say, hey, once you reach, you know, a million active users per month, now this legislation kicks in that says uh, you, you are going to be hold, held more strictly accountable to your own terms. Which it's funny because you just even saying that and thinking about how we would cover it on Daily Tech News Show would, in my mind, lead a bunch of startups to want to get acquired by a bunch of larger companies if they were about to cross some threshold so they could scale easier, which is already a problem, which is already why a lot of startups get acquired by larger companies, which leads us back to the other side of the federal government, which is threatening to break up companies like Facebook <laughs> because they keep gobbling well, up startups. That's why you got to watch out for those unintended consequences, right? Because you're absolutely right. It, depending on where you set that threshold... Suddenly, yeah, if you have to set it where it's big enough that a company that got that big probably wouldn't want to get acquired because it's that big, right? Yeah. Just like, oh, we're so successful. Why would we get acquired? We're, we're doing great. But you want it to be low enough that it applies to the companies that are able to use their power in a more effective way. And that's why Facebook is the target for this, right? Because nobody cares if you get kicked off of, I don't know, a really mastodon, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, nobody cares because not that many people are using it. What people care about are Facebook and Twitter because everybody's using it. All right, let's talk about some other things that I could uh, 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 rattle off here. When it comes to these sites in deciding what they are going to amplify or not amplify. And let's take that Hunter Biden story from the from the New York Post before the election. That was something that that there was a very strident case made by both Twitter and Facebook. Uh, and and then after the election, there were a bunch of Hunter Biden stories that came out that did not have any kind of the same scrutiny uh, levied upon it. Is there some kind of uh, uh, specifically in terms of, of published material, some kind of guidelines for which we would want to craft legislation. Yeah. I mean, the, what, what you're going to hear from the tech companies I would imagine is, well, the reason we were stricter on the Hunter Biden stories ahead of the election is because election, uh, now they don't have an effect on election because after election. So it, it, it is not, setting a single rule it's it's adapting your rule based on the effects which is but, that, but very... that's but that to me if i were to say that there is the most sympathy that i have for these arguments are that literally that because that's almost exactly what uh facebook and twitter did and yeah. they almost certainly did it uh, uh either by their own admission or by very obvious evidence because they got so much crap in 2016 and they internally yeah. felt that they were uh a taken over by the Russians buying tens of thousands of dollars worth of uh, digital ads, which 
go ahead and 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 use. Don't your forget own- the psychology professor who gave some publicly available data without permission to a company <laughs> that may or may not have used it. Yes, exactly. So it's like they felt internally that that they were they were doing stuff, and so they were overly punitive. But I do feel sympathy for for folks who say, "Well, look, uh, uh, there is a, a, an element of of you being the public square for which I, I wouldn't mind a, a a you know a guardrail on stuff like that that you had to pass some kind of test that's something other than people in your internal Slack are mad to remove stories from well and 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 that's it gets tricky because again. Most of the Section 230 discussion is really about the First Amendment, not Section 230. Section 230 is a rule of civil procedure to say, should we have more or fewer court cases? It's not about the rights. The rights are in the First Amendment. And this is a First Amendment situation, which is purely under the First Amendment. Facebook has the right to delete stories. Twitter has the right to just delete your posts and say, you know, I don't want those on there. Right. That's that's your right as a private platform to, you know, you're but 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 doesn't you're not you don't you're not a, you are not a government entity. Uh, so you get the right to allow expression however you want. But doesn't 230 protect them from the New York Post per se being able to sue for relief to say that that that, that you are violating X, Y, Z, you're violating our free speech and therefore. But we, they're we not violating say. New York Post free speech. New York Post free speech is to be able to say out loud, this is what is true about Hunter Biden. Yeah. First Amendment doesn't guarantee the New York Post the right for anyone to have to carry the New York Post around and show it to people. Yeah. Uh, and that's what Facebook is essentially doing, is carrying it around and showing it to people. So that you you can't say oh you have a platform you're a district it's it would be like telling the bookstore they have to carry the new york post and the bookstore's like we don't want to carry the new york post yeah you wouldn't go to a bookstore which is a distributor not a publisher and say you now have to carry these magazines and these books uh because we don't feel that your bookstore is very balanced i mean you know what the uh the uh, C- christian bookstore is probably not going to carry the anarchist cookbook and the Marxist bookstore, probably not going to carry the National Review. Uh, maybe they will, but they have the right to do that. Facebook is a distributor like a bookstore. And so they have the right to not carry or carry whatever they want. The difference is they are way more influential than any particular bookstore. That's why people are upset because yes. they're like, yeah, but once it gets on Facebook, once Facebook does it, it affects a lot more people. And that's why you need to figure out, okay, how do we not subvert the First Amendment, <laughs> but also acknowledge that this is a different situation? And that's where I think you can say, well, it ha- you, two things are, you have to be huge. You have, you have to be so big that what you do is influential in a, in a way that a single bookstore or even a bookstore chain wouldn't be. And number two, uh, you have to hold people accountable to their own rules. Not set the rules for them, because again, then you run into First Amendment troubles. Yeah. But say... Okay, if you're saying you want to be, you know, egalitarian, it, are you following it? And are there and can we ramp up the punishments if you're not following your own terms? You want to know the the philosophical part of this that I find kind of interesting is that what bothers critics of these social media platforms are that there is the Silicon Valley ethos of move move fast and break things. 
and try things and turn them off and turn them on. And that there is a tremendous weakness in holding on to things for tradition's sake because you're not going to iterate fast enough and the people that don't iterate fast enough die. Right. And that's also why people get nervous about Trump <laughs> is that Trump is also a big move fast and break things kind of guy. And and who cares about tradition? Why don't we just do this? Blah, 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 blah. That, that, that seems to be, that is our modern, our, our, our modern code. The, the, the thing that unites us and attracts us and simultaneously repels us. Yeah. It's, it's okay. As long as it's in service of what you want to happen. Exactly. I mean, that, that's what you're showing is yes. like, Hey, if it's my person doing it, great. But if it's you doing it against me, not okay. <sighs> so I think, what, what do you think? Should we call Mitch? Should we, should we, should we run this up the flagpole? I don't even know if we really did anything. I think we all, I think we just danced around the idea that, 2.30, complicated. 2.30 should not be repealed. That's the should one thing repealed. I would tell Mitch. No, no, no. Mitch I don't, is not going to listen to me. No, uh, no, no, no. And this is a poison pill, so the Democrats don't vote for it. But uh, oh, Exactly. And it's probably not going to be repealed. But if it were to be repealed, suddenly sites would face two choices, practically speaking. Not legally speaking, but practically speaking, to say, look, we don't want to fight all these lawsuits, so we either are not going to moderate at all so that we're not going to be seen as liable, Right. Uh, cause again, that, that's how the Wolf of Wall Street got prodigy is like, Hey, they're moderating some stuff, but they didn't moderate these criticisms of me. And the yeah. court said, yeah, you're right. They're, they're acting like a publisher. So let's treat them like one section 230 changed that. So if we get rid of section 230, it goes back to, Hey, if you're moderating stuff, now you're probably the publisher. So you might be liable for all of it. Uh, and, and so your choices there are either to clamp down on what gets published and not allow anything to get published, which is against what a lot of the critics are saying Facebook and Twitter should do, saying you should allow more things or let everything get published, which means I, you, if there's something illegal on here, you go after the person who published it because I'm not a publisher. And I, if I moderate, I'll get in trouble. So you, you don't want that. That is only good for lawyers. Last question, and this is on the tech side. I saw somebody on Twitter make the interesting comment that you haven't really heard a lot of wailing and gnashing of teeth from Facebook or Twitter or Google uh, by way of YouTube about the idea of, of repealing 230? Is this something that they just don't even want to acknowledge or are they maybe too big to fail? And they're like, yeah, whatever, repeal it. We're, we have enough lawyers to float us until we have our lobbyists help craft the, the new legislation. Oh, yeah. In fact, Facebook has said they believe in reform of Section 230. Not yeah. repeal, obviously, but... Uh, yeah, it, they're not worried. They don't want to have to pay the lawyers extra, but they can if they need to. That That's a cost they're prepared to pay. Uh, everybody smaller than them, uh, not a, not not going to make it through that, not going to be able to pay for that. In fact, a lot of the smaller sites out there are a little upset with the Internet Association, feeling that the Internet Association is is just caving to Facebook's wishes and, and going soft on 230. Uh, and so they have created their own coalition at internet.works uh, to try to say like, hey, the, here's what's really going on with Section 230 and here's what you need to know. Uh, and I don't know if they're big enough to have a voice, but they've definitely been run off into their own organization because the big companies are like, yeah, we don't love it. But, you know, it would strike out a bunch of our possible competitors. So that's a positive. <laughs> and you want to know what else was a positive? Having this conversation with Tom Merritt 
Uh, uh, thank you, thank you, thank you so much, man. Again, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. And uh, everybody, go check out the Daily Tech News Show. Uh, it is daily, it is tech, and it is a news show. And what, uh, uh, when, when, when do we pick back up? After, uh, after, after yeah, the new year? Right now we're doing specials like our prediction show and checking in our predictions results from last year. But we'll, we'll be back to regular old daily news on January 4th. There we go. Guys, check it out there. See you next time, Tom Merritt. And that'll wrap it up for us today. Thank you one more time to our guest, Professor Robert Howard of Georgia State University and Tom Merritt, Daily Tech News Show, all-around great guy. I would also like to remind you guys that if you want to email the show, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. If you want to tweet the show, it is at px3tweets. Our Twitch live stream can be found at px3live.com. Our free political newsletter can be found at px3newsletter.com. And our podcast page that you can share with the world is at px3podcast.com. You can support us by going to take politics seriously. You can just PayPal me a one-time donation at paypal.me slash payjury. Venmo me at justin-young-20. And... If you're old school, you can send a check. P.O. Box 10853, Oakland, California, 94610. And if you'd like to access our premium content, including our trip to Georgia, without uh, going through Patreon, then just go ahead and email me, theyoungamerican at gmail.com, and we'll figure out a way. But for those that are at our Titanic $10 tier, I would like to read them out right now. I love you, TNT. Dr. G, The Jen, Kathy Mack, Headphones, Neil, Onward to Georgia, Captain Bunzo, Jay Sulu, Dallas Danger, Taylor, Middle-Aged Mike, Bud, what happened to Tex? Get a bucket and a mop, Cujo, Idris, Jacob Wilson, Berkeley Steven, Justin Egan, Dotcom Junkie, Diana, Sunny Smiles, Tempest Fugit, Jason with Magnolia Delta pr- uh, Credit Card Processing. Yep. Alec, Government Unfiltered, Andres, Archie, Darren, Adam, Olin and Angela, DL, Kyle, Chad, Nomadic, Taryn, Miranda, Janelle, Jenny, Robert, Paul, the most conscientious nonpartisan listeners, Brad, Richard, Just Another Pilot, D Really, Frozen Summers, J Pink, and Andrew. You want to join their ranks one more time? It is take politicsseriously.com the $3 tier you don't get right at the end but that's where you get all the bonus content that's going to come from Georgia for the runoffs which is where I'm heading after this our Friday episode will be our campaign undertaker the final installment of the 2020 campaign season until then this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying Some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more discuss politics, but this, this is the only show that dares talk about
Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.